Morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. We are coming to the end of a series of messages in a church-wide study called Future Present. And over the last six weeks, we have been imagining together our call to be a welcome sign in the present of the future that God is bringing into the world. And we started with how the church is marked by God's grace in Jesus. And we're going to kind of circle back on that theme this morning by talking about how a community that has grace embodied becomes a community of reconciliation in a culture of division. I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as Paul describes how those who have received God's grace now inhabit a new world. A new age brought about by the death and resurrection of Jesus. As a people of this new world, we are called to see with new eyes. See, not people as enemies and strangers, but as family. Starting at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would transform these words into a living word to us. We pray this through Jesus Christ, the one who is the word made flesh. Amen. In his novel, The Movie Goer, Walker Percy's protagonist, John Bowling, tells his readers this. Whenever I feel bad... I go to the library and read controversial periodicals. Sounds like a hoot, right? Though I do not know whether I am a liberal or a conservative, I am nevertheless enlivened by the hatred which one bears the other. In fact, this hatred strikes me as one of the very few signs of life remaining in the world. This is another thing about the world which is upside down. All the friendly and likable people seem dead to me. Only the haters seem alive. An upside down world indeed, not the way it is supposed to be. And yet, while you may not be having an existential meltdown, like Percy's protagonist here, you know what it's like to feel the weight of antagonism swirling around in our society. You know what it's like to feel like the rancor is swallowing up the kindness in the world. You know this because you've felt it. Let me ask you, What relationships did you lose over the last few years? And I don't mean deaths due to illness, though that is the reality for so many of us. I mean, what relationships did you lose to divisions, to ruptures, to moral fractures, to politics? 
Whether that was over masks and vaccinations or over QAnon and elections and January 6th or over Antifa gun reform, the Supreme Court, maybe you lost friendships over the specter of social Darwinism that inserts its ghostly head into our society and whispers the lie that white European men are destined to occupy the top rung of the ladder. And that lie then spills out into our cultural debates about race and police reform and justice. It haunts the memory of Charlottesville and Ferguson, the stunning increase of anti-Asian violence in the wake of COVID-19 or the resurgence of anti-Semitic tropes tweeted carelessly by celebrities. So who did you lose? Was it a parent, a sibling, a child? friend, a neighbor, a roommate, that person in college who you knew so well, that person you have so many fond memories of, so many pictures of, but who you no longer recognize by what they post on social media. And you remember, dang, we used to be so close. What happened? Did they change or did I? I've said a lot recently about the reality of the post-Christian culture that we live in, but it's not the case that religion has gone away. In fact, belief in God, specifically the belief of God in the Bible, remains pretty high in our culture. It's identification with an institution, with a community of worship. That's the thing that's on decline. And you could argue very much that religion is still alive. It's just shifted. Belief has just gone somewhere else. It's gone to the place like where worshiping communities used to be the moral arbiters of thoughtful reflection on faith, about meaning, about how we live those things out in our society. People are now increasingly looking to political or cultural tribes to define reality, to carve out meaning, to carve out the moral and ethical framework about how to live. Ideological commitments then reinterpret theology so that weighty matters of things like race and justice and sex, well, they just get viewed through the lens of tribal narratives instead of through the lens of the gospel. God becomes the person who likes my tribe and is angry at the other tribes. Theologian Leslie Newbig has been predicted as much back in the 1970s with what he called the rise of the political religions. Add to that, sociologists say that we are nearly as divided as a nation as we were in the 1850s, just before the Civil War. And one of the ways that they measure that is by looking at America's sense of social trust. Pew Research has been tracking public trust since 1956. You can see back then in the 60s, it was at its peak at 80%. That number has fallen to 18% in 2020. That is the number of people who have confidence that the government will do the right thing. Every and any issue can be channeled into an us versus them conflict between warring factions where partisan narratives justify any means. Political violence in the United States has climbed dramatically in the last five years. A recent poll from UC Davis found that one out of every five Americans believe that violence is sometimes justified to advance a political goal. Fortunately, that is down from one in three from a similar poll in January. And during election coverage on Tuesday night, I sat puzzled as a pundit was lamenting on live television at what he described as the lack of a strong enough hate vote to galvanize his political tribe into action. And I was sitting there thinking, do you actually hear what you are saying? And then I realized, oh, you heard it and you meant it. 
It reminded me of a section from the theologian Howard Thurman's 1949 classic, Jesus and the Disinherited. Thurman was a theological mentor to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. It was said that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. carried a copy of Jesus and the Disinherited with him wherever he went. And in this chapter on hate, he writes about how all of us have this contempt that's just boiling and brewing beneath the surface. It's one of the great spiritual battles of life. But then in these great moments of crisis, and he lists the uh, World War II, which was just fresh in everyone's imagination, in those moments, it takes what's beneath the service and it focuses it on a target, a them that we can use to blame and give us an excuse to justify our hate, to see our contempt as an actual moral virtue instead of a vice to call what is evil good. See, because if you can point the finger, you feel like you gain a sense of control over your life. You have a target. You have a place to place your anxiety. And you don't really have to face your own reality or in the language of the Bible, you don't really have to face your own sin and shame. And the thing about it all is, is that tribal outrage works really well as a business model. But it also metastasizes from national politics to media outlets to corporations and then goes from offices to schools to neighborhoods to the dinner table at Thanksgiving next week. Have fun with that. But the division we're seeing is also, in part, due to the bewildering shifts that we are experiencing, both demographically and sociologically. About, if you think about it this way, in, in 1790, only about one out of every 20 Americans lived in a city. But now 71% live in urban centers like ours. You can see how the, the graph is just completely inverted. And in these urban centers where most of the people now live tend to be wealthier, they tend to be more educated, they tend to be more influential over pop culture. And the remaining 29% live in small towns, they live in rural settings, in places that often feel forgotten and looked down upon by the cultural brokers. And those of us who do live in metro areas are fragmented even further into what the sociologist Robert Belloc calls lifestyle enclaves. That is, groups who express their identity through sameness in the way that they look and what they buy and where they buy it and the kind of activities they engage in and all those things become markers that contrast them with other people. Some have called what we're experiencing the big sort, the separation between the various communities in our nation, be they between non-white and white or, or rich and poor or right-wing and left-wing or urban elites and rural working class. And the result is that a lot of us don't know or spend time with people who don't already look like us, think like us, act like us, scroll like us, and play like us. And the problem with all that is that, as the pastor and writer Derwin Gray warns, it's that echo chambers of homogeneity morph into cages that limit our capacity to empathize and mourn. And somehow, at the same time where we live in closer proximity to each other than at any point in human history, we are also paradoxically lonelier than ever before. Data from the conservative think tank American Enterprise Institute found that the percentage of your neighbors who say they don't have a single close friend has quadrupled over the past three decades. Upwards of 40% of Americans say that they don't have a single person in their life in whom they can confide. 
Nearly half of Americans say that they have only made one new friend within the last 12 months. Nearly a third say that they've only made one new friend in the past one to four years. And 22% say that it has been at least five years since they made a new friend. But you gotta know this isn't a uniquely American problem. Britain and Japan have both created within the last three years a cabinet level position called the Minister of Loneliness. And while civic institutions and congregations used to be this kind of social solvent, this place where people could work things out, where differences could come together, where where traditions would bind people into webs of community, those things have eroded as well. And so beneath all of the anger and the division and the political fervor are millions of people who are lonely and afraid, who feel very little sense of control over the life that is just happening to them. And often if you're lonely, an angry, an angry tribe, even if it's only a digital tribe, is better than no tribe at all. So we're left to wonder, how is healing and flourishing possible in a world so divided? Just a little shot in the arm for you guys this morning. And yet, While our cultural moment feels fraught, the divisions that we are experiencing are not a new story. They are merely ripples caused by the fragmentation of everything that happened when sin and death entered into the world. And into this story of division came Jesus who gave his life to turn enemies into a family. While we were yet still enemies, Paul writes to the church in Rome, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son and not just reconciling us to himself but reconciling us to each other, given over to the ministry of being a reconciling people called to take that into the world, taking a divided people and bringing them into a new family that's not bound on class or blood or soil or ethnicity or ideology but only on allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King. In Paul's theology, whenever you sit at a table, and break bread with somebody who doesn't look like you, think like you, act like you, talk like you, you are bound only by shared worship of Jesus, Lord, then that is a sign of the foretaste of the kingdom of God coming into the world. It is a witness to all the powers of darkness in this world and to the spiritual forces that their reign of terror over human history has come to an end. The future is crashing into the present because Jesus is Lord. Thank you. (laughs) So what if the division and disrepair in our cultural moment is by God's grace actually an invitation for us to enter into renewal and reconciliation? What if the act of receiving each other in the way that Jesus receives us becomes a staging ground for the healing of the deepest divisions that plague our society so the world can see healing and hope come into the world? What if our community becomes a place where people from all kinds of backgrounds, all different walks of life find grace and belonging around a table? What if our homes become a space of listening and peace and repentance where barriers get torn down and enemies and strangers become family. 
Well, throughout his letters to the church in Corinth, Paul is encouraging this socially and economically stratified church made up of Jews and Gentiles, enslaved and free people, men and women, to live as representatives of the kingdom that God is bringing into the world. To learn how this gospel expressed in in Jesus spills out into reconciled relationships in the world. I love how Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil describes this ministry of reconciliation. She writes this, Reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. This is the ministry of of reconciliation that God has called us to, the personal dimension of the gospel, how God reconciles us to him through the cross, then spills out into the social dimension of reconciled relationships in the world. And to help them understand that, Paul gives them this remarkable image. He says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, And he has committed to us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. In other words, God's work and will done out in the world is done through his people. It's done through you and me. So that when people see us and how we speak and how we act and how we treat one another, they see the Jesus who brought grace into the world. An ambassador, after all, is not left to do his or her own thing, but to do the will of the one who sent them. And so Paul pleads with this community to put on new eyes to see each other and the world in light of how Jesus saw it, to, to come to it the way that Jesus came to the world. And one of the primary practices he encourages them to imply in this new vision is in their practice of table fellowship. Through their hospitality to others to extend this radical grace that Jesus modeled in his life, in his ministry. But you got to know, it took a while for this to get into the church in Corinth. A little bit of background. Church of Corinth was uh, in a major port city, a wealthy spot, a major commercial hub of the Roman system. And in Corinthian culture, meals were a big deal. Who you ate with said a lot about who you cared about, a lot about who you were. It was a kind of a boundary marker in that world, kind of like a middle school cafeteria, right? You know, there's this clear social and economic ladder where where you stand on that ladder is about how cool you are. It depends on your social capital, right? Or are you wise? Are you influential? Do you come from, from, from money? Do you come from nobility? And, and getting on that ladder for the Corinthians could be a matter of life and death. Getting up meant that you had prospects. And claiming a better seat at the table was a way to climb that ladder. And so the Corinthians were bringing this mentality into their church gatherings, sorting people out by status. And in his first letter to the church, he lets them know that the way they were gathering specifically the way that they were coming to the table, was reinforcing all of the ways that the culture had been training them in division all their lives. The wealthy and the connected took the best seats at the table, the most food. They left the poor and the marginalized on the outside, humiliated, begging for scraps. Now, this was just business as usual in Corinthian culture, but Paul says this has no place in the church of Jesus. 
He tells them, your meetings do more harm than good. When you come together, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you eat. In fact, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, that is without thinking about how you have ignored your brothers and sisters who are struggling, you eat and drink judgment on yourselves. He's letting them know that the way that God has arranged this new family has shattered all of the categories of division they have been trained in by their culture. Jesus' table is the one where the, the one with the highest position is the one who seeks to serve. So he goes on to tell them that when they eat, they are to welcome one another. They're to eat with each other, to see each other with new eyes, to hear each other with new ears. Lean in to fellowship with one another. Press into those places of pain and brokenness. Come offering repentance. Come seeking forgiveness when necessary. Come offering the grace that you have received. And along with that, come and experience the grace and the peace that comes from a restored community. Now, this was not some sort of like theoretical proposition from Paul. This was not you know, Pollyanna-ish looking at the world and thinking, oh, we're just going to all start singing kumbaya with each other. It's going to be great. No, this was a lived experience from him. He experienced this kind of reconciliation expressed through a community that took him in while he was an enemy of the church. It changed him. Acts chapter 9 tells the story of how Paul was on the road to persecute Christians when he was met by the risen Jesus and blinded and asked, why are you persecuting me? And in this encounter, he, he was brought into a home where the very ones that he was persecuting gave him shelter. They prayed for him. They called him brother. They brought him to the table. In the words of the New Testament, they were practicing hospitality to invite people to the table was an olive branch. It was an offer of peace. It was an offer of forgiveness. First century Judaism meant that sharing a table meant sharing life with each other. Fellowship at the table was akin to fellowship with God. And so the inclusion of an enemy at the table, those who were welcoming the unjust, was the most profound expression of God's reconciliation imaginable. One New Testament scholar described the practice of hospitality in the early church like this. Hospitality is the act or process whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of guest. The primary impulse of hospitality is to create a safe and welcoming space where the stranger can be converted into a friend. The practice of hospitality to strangers very frequently hopes to create relationships and friendships between those who were previously either alienated, at enmity, or simply unknown to one another. Christians have always been a strange people in a hostile world. Historians tell us that one of the defining features of the early Christian communities was how they would welcome those whom they should regard as natural enemies into table fellowship. Well, they learned it from Jesus. Jesus had this remarkable ability to draw people from all kinds of backgrounds, from the most culturally incompatible groups into a new community. I mean, his disciples... They, they were nationalists, cultural traitors. They were Pharisees and peasants. They were women and sex workers and everyone in between. Two of his disciples, Simon, was an anti-Roman terrorist. 
And Matthew was an imperial collaborator. Man, you got to wonder what their dinner table talk was like. But these two became part of the 12 who were also named apostles. What happened to their politics at the table? We actually have no idea what Jesus thought about either of them. We don't know what happened. All we know is that they were invited into a new future and a new family. And they found in allegiance to Jesus something deeper than the things that separated them. Now we read that and we think, wow, that's so cool. But you've got to know that no rabbi would be caught dead eating any, with any of the people that Jesus ate with. Imagine whoever it is when you think of the them, the enemies who are responsible for the way that the world is broken and why it's broken. Now imagine Jesus at a table with them. How do you feel about that, Jesus? But yet, wherever Jesus was, he was both the guest and the host. He created at the table these portals of grace where people could receive a new identity. That is what Jesus does. He turns enemies into guests, even if it's at a friend's table, and then he turns those guests into family. And this is still what Jesus does. He does it through his body. This is what it means to be ambassador of God's reconciliation to the world. You carry God's welcome toward you into the world. You open your home and you set a table with new eyes that he has given you to see neighbors and co-workers, not as enemies that need to be defeated in a culture war, but as brothers and sisters whom God has reconciled to himself in the same way that he has reconciled you. You are the medium through which the message will be received. In a culture of division, the hospitality that you offer indexes your heart toward reconciliation. Your table becomes an extension of Christ's table. We spent several weeks on the practice of hospitality this summer, and there are a few ideas for how to put that into practice in the community guide this week, but the basic idea is this. Open your home and your life to someone. Open your home or your apartment to a neighbor, to a colleague at work, to someone who doesn't have community, to someone who isn't a member of your lifestyle enclave, maybe somebody who isn't even interested at all in church or in Christians, but for some reason thinks that maybe you're okay. And invite them over to a meal and see what happens, see what the Spirit cooks up. See where the conversation goes. What if renewal doesn't begin with a massive project or a, or a big program, but with these ordinary acts of hospitality spurred on by ambassadors of Jesus out in the world, called to lean into those places where strife and loneliness and injustice and brokenness reign and allow the seeds of the kingdom to break through? Maybe it looks like just rebuilding the social trust we've lost as a generation, one table at a time, one home at a time, one meal at a time. Maybe it looks like taking a walk, offering an apology. Maybe it looks like listening to the places of pain all around us. 
For a couple of years, our staff and our session have been asking, how can we tell the story about the kingdom instead of lamenting simply the stories of racialized divisions in our culture? The compounding trauma of racial injustice, centuries in the making, has become too heavy to ignore. It always was too heavy to ignore, but the church has all too often ignored it. And this is those who are called to reveal God's reconciliation in the world. And this has caused so much pain to members of our family who are not white. Our leadership team lamented over our inability to effectively bear burdens and begin to ask what we would need to learn to prepare our hearts to become a reconciling community. And so if you've been around here for a while, you will have received an invitation this week to complete a survey through an organization that we have partnered with called Erebon, whose mission it is to work with churches like ours to help us undergo the deep formation necessary to become a reconciling community. We honestly did not plan for that to happen this week. It just was a little bit of serendipity. But this past June, 40 or so of our members, elders, deacons, staff, members of our race and biblical justice team, took the first step in a multi-year process of learning and planning to grow as disciples of Jesus, committed to the ministry of reconciliation in this community. It's an aspirational statement of who we long to become. I can only speak for myself, but as a white guy who grew up on the West Coast in a pretty homogenous community, whose best experiences of diversity took place once a week when I would drive to a different part of town and play pickup basketball. I knew that there was plenty that I did not know. I did not know how much I didn't know. There's way more than I could possibly ever know. And over the last few years, I've learned that there's even more that I don't know than that. So many more blind spots that I have, so many ways that I can casually hurt others, so many assumptions about how to do things that are locked into my narrow lens, my cultural background, my experience, my history. And there are other ways and there are better ways. Part of this learning edge of practicing hospitality for me has been learning how to listen, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. Learning how to repent when I'm wrong and how to work to make things right. How to be served through others' gifts and see new layers of possibility and joy. My growing edge of discipleship has been to leave my story and to enter into somebody else's story where I am not at the center of it and allow myself to be shaped by their story, to rejoice when they rejoice, to mourn when they mourn. So often, these new eyes that Jesus gives us come at the shape of, on the other side of tears. Sharing another's pain and joy serves as a catalyst for a new imagination. Listening is a profound act of hospitality. But let me be crystal clear, a nice meal and a good conversation is not going to end long-standing divisions or topple systems of injustice centuries in the making. But they will create a space where change begins, where relationships start to grow. Because without those relationships, you won't even pick up the tools to build bridges across the cultural divides or break down the walls of separation that Jesus has already claimed are destroyed. 
That is what the world longs to see from us, a community reconciled to God, flourishing in relationship to one another so it can bring hope and healing into the world. And if it doesn't see that in us, then that number of our decline deserves to go all the way down to zero. I'll close with this. I spent some time a number of years ago at, up at uh, an island called Lindisfarne, a small little tidal spot between Scotland and England. And it was an important part of English history during a time of tremendous political and social unrest where there was massive migration and war and the slaughter of Christians. And in that time, a missionary named Aidan along with 12 of his friends, came to the island and started a new community, this intentional Christian community. They had this rhythm. When the tide was low, they would go out into the community and they would let people know that they were there to serve them, to see what needs they had. And then when the tide was high, when they were cut off from the mainland, they would come back and offer hospitality to strangers, welcome them into their life, into the rhythm of service and prayer and worship. Day in, day out, they would do this. And one of the historians at the time noted that the people would rejoice whenever they saw Aidan and his friends coming because they knew that these followers of Jesus were only there to give. And over time, people began to catch a glimpse of the way these Christians lived who they were called to be. And they found themselves wanting to live into that calling. They found themselves wanting that new identity and they found themselves believing what it was that the Christians taught. And from that tiny corner in England, in two generations, most of England came to trust that Jesus was Lord and to worship him. A land that was dominated by war and, and intertribal squabbles two generations earlier has, was now experiencing a prolonged peace. Over countless tables, enemies became guests, guests became family. God has done it before, he can do it again. Friends, we are Christ's ambassadors charged with bringing his ministry of peace, justice, and reconciliation into the world. You do not have to look very far to find corners of your world that are still in chains to the old patterns that need to see and experience the message that the new has come. And so wherever you go, wherever God sends you, know that he sends you as his representative to live in that freedom of that message and live it out in the world. And it is just as likely to happen when you step outside and see what's going on with your neighbor's lives or to see what's going on with your coworker or to see what is doing with the lonely people in your midst. So friends, wherever you go, represent. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are a community that believes that in Jesus, you spoke the last word about everything. And so we ask that you would shape us by your word, allow it to get into our hearts. In reconciling us, you have opened up a new possibility, a new imagination. And so God, we ask that you would give us new eyes to see, new ears to hear, that we would see your kingdom coming into this world. Amen.